Well, hey, hey everybody. Uh, welcome to RUF. Uh, my name is John Bourgeois. I'm the campus minister here, and it is so good to see all of y'all back. If this is your first time with us, we're really glad that you're here. Um, as Preston said, um, RUF, we're a campus ministry here at Wake Forest, and uh, we exist for both the convinced and the unconvinced. So if you're convinced, if you're a Christian and you're trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus in college, um, we're here for you. Um, if you're convinced as a skeptic and you are um, interested in the claims of Christianity, um, we're here for you. We hope this is a place that you can learn more about the Bible and what it is that Christians believe. And um, if you're unconvinced, if you're unsure what you believe, um, uh, we're glad you're here. This is a place where we hope that um, through your time at Wake Forest, you can formulate those things, figure out what it is that you believe and why you believe it. Um, so we usually have a screen and a projector, but the bridge changed its policy on us over break sneakily and locked us out. So that's why you've got these white sheets today. So thanks for bearing with us um, today. And um, so I'm going to read for us uh, from Scripture. It's printed on the back of your orange sheet. Um, and this semester, we are going to be studying the book of Leviticus together. And my task tonight... Um, is to tell you why. So let's read this together, and I'll pray, and then we'll get started. This is from Leviticus 1.1 and Numbers 1.1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And then from Numbers 1.1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we do thank you that you love us um, and that you give us this time together. We thank you for your word, that you speak to us through it. We pray now that you would help us, um, help us to make sense of it. Um, and Lord, in that, to see Jesus clearly. Um, we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, much of my information tonight, material is, bought, is borrowed from men wiser than I. Les Newsome, Ryan Anderson, um, Jay Sklar, um, so those men in particular. And so as I said, this week, or this semester, we're going to be studying the book of Leviticus. And my task tonight is to convince you to come back next week. Um, it's actually my task, my task each week at RUF to lay before you the truth claims of Christianity in such a way that it actually has something to say to your life. Um, your life as you actually live it. That, and this task is not always easy. Um, because if Christianity is going to mean anything to our culture the nagging questions of our cultures must be answered. And so I'm just going to mention a few of these questions that are, uh, that are levied against Christianity. Maybe you've heard these questions or you're asking them yourselves. So first, um, why all the blood and gore in the Bible? Right? Especially with Jesus' death. Why can't God just forgive? There's a, uh, a man named Christopher Hitchens who was a public intellectual and a famous uh, public atheist. He died in 2011. And he said this about Jesus' bloody death. He said, Once again, we have a father demonstrating love by subjecting a son to death by torture. But this time, the father is not trying to impress God. He is God, and he is trying to impress humans. Ask yourself the question, how moral is the following? I am told of a human sacrifice that took place 2,000 years ago without my wishing it, and in circumstances so ghastly that had I been present and in possession of any influence, I would have been duty-bound to try and stop it. In, the, in consequence of this murder, my own manifold sins are forgiven me, and I may hope to enjoy everlasting life. This is um, Hitchens in a book he wrote. Right? That's a big question. Why the blood and gore, especially with Jesus? And I just want to simply point out tonight that the answer to this question begins in the obscure third book of the Bible, Leviticus. Um, 
Perhaps Leviticus' biggest problem is what it says about sexuality, at least biggest for our culture today, um, especially as it relates to homosexuality. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've heard this. You Christians, you believe that Leviticus condemns homosexuality here in the text. You do know, right, that in the same book it forbids people eating pork and wearing mixed fabrics. Christians don't seem to have a problem with, with bacon. They don't seem to have a problem with wearing poly cotton blends. Um, seems like you're picking and choosing what to follow and what not. Have you ever heard anything like this? Maybe you have. Um, third, Leviticus is a famous whipping boy. Uh, during his first campaign, President Obama explained that it's dangerous to bring the Bible into politics. While talking about the fact that there are many ways to interpret the Bible, he said, would it be James Dobson or Al Sharpton's opinion that we would follow? What passages of scripture should guide our public policy? Should we go with Leviticus, which suggests that slavery is okay and that eating shellfish is an abomination? Right, you hear that? Leviticus is used as the reason why we shouldn't bring religion into the civic sphere of life, because it's dangerous. A friend of mine went to see Nick Offerman's stand-up. Nick Offerman plays Ron Swanson in Parks and Rec. Um, he said that during this incredibly lewd performance, um, he actually pulled out a Bible. Nick Offerman pulled out a Bible and read from Leviticus during his stand-up. And he said this. He said, the Bible is full of great lessons, no question. But Leviticus is the most messed up book in the Bible. If you like comedy, go curl up with Leviticus because it's so absurd. He said the the writers at The Onion are given Leviticus as their their first homework when they get there to find humor. And his premise in this is that Leviticus must be made fun of because it's too dangerous to be taken seriously. Now, putting all this together, we see that Leviticus is our culture's excuse to ignore the Bible. The book is so obscured and detailed and so bizarre and boring that the modern person contends that this book that if this book has anything to do with your religion, then it's either beyond me, it must be nonsensical, at worst, it makes, dan- it makes Christianity dangerous to our society because it's hateful or bigoted. Leviticus's mere presence in the canon of Scripture seems like a stumbling, stumbling block to believe in God, much less Christianity. One pastor says this, he says that Leviticus is like that drunk uncle from your family, you know, the one who only comes at, to weddings, and, uh, and he's really annoying and obnoxious, and you just have to tolerate him because he's family, but mostly you're just embarrassed by him and treat him like he's not there. He's like the Uncle Eddie of the Bible, right? Um, so therefore, we're going to ask the question this semester, why Leviticus? What in the world is this book about, and why does it matter? And if we can find meaning in this book, then perhaps, maybe perhaps we can trust, um, we can trust all of it to direct our lives. And there's three places that we're going to look this semester to find meeting in Leviticus. We're going to look at the good news and the shadows. We're going to look at healing that's found in holiness. And we're going to look at the reality and ritual. And this is the outline. If you guys are note takers, this is on your orange sheet. Um, So first we're going to start with the good news and the shadows. So right after college, Mary Clark, my wife, and I um, went to Spain. My sister was living in Spain at the time. And to prepare for the trip, I decided to read um, Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls. And this novel, if you're unfamiliar with it, is set during the Spanish Civil War. And there's this pivotal scene in the book where about 500 people are marched off a cliff in the town of Ronda. 
And so we were in southern Spain, and so we're, I was reading the book, and I was like, we got to go to Rhonda. And so we go to Rhonda, um, and amongst other things we saw there, we saw this cliff where 500 people had been executed during the Spanish Civil War. Um, and so the shadowy image in my mind that I read in the book was brought into vivid color as I saw the gorge. Now, many of you do this, right? When you go somewhere, you read about it first. You study the place that you're going to before you visit. So you can have a fuller experience when you go, right? This is why travel books sell so well. Uh, travel guides sell so well. And then when you taste it, right? When you go to that restaurant that you researched about, that nobody else knows about, that's so cool, and you actually taste the food, how much better is it than when you read it in the book? Or to say this a different way, one of my favorite movies is A River Runs Through It. And when I watch that movie, um, and especially the scenes of the brothers fly fishing, something stirs in me. And it makes me want to go stand in the trout stream with a fly rod. Right? The, the movie points me to a better reality. And in both of the examples, in the book and in the movie, both of them are shadows of reality. Do you all see that? They're, they're shadows of the reality. Um, Hebrews 8, uh, in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, explains that when New Christians put their faith, or when New Testament Christians put their faith in Jesus, their beliefs weren't a novelty. They weren't something new. The New Testament tells us that all of the truth that Jesus taught, all of these existed in what the book of Hebrews calls copies and shadows. And the more the early Christians studied the shadows, the more they made connections with their own experience, and specifically with what Jesus taught and, and did, um, the more that they studied the Old Testament, the more they made these connections. The more they saw how Jesus was, was the truer, um, more, more beautiful, more clear picture of what was present in the Old Testament. And this is still happening. For many of you, your experience with Christianity has been shaky, maybe unstable. And for lack of a better way to put it, it hasn't had the loveliness that the Bible says it ought to have. Why? Well, who knows? Um, but perhaps... A look at the shadows will do for us what reading Hemingway and, and watching a river runs through it did for me. To study the early drafts of the Christian message found in Leviticus will lead us to love the gospel more. And so I'm going to try to convince you this semester that the book of Leviticus is the Christian gospel in early draft form. It was the first book little Jewish children were given to memorize. This is Christian discipleship in early draft form. The New Testament may be the map, but Leviticus is the early charts. Without Leviticus, the New Testament would be a house without a foundation. So we're going to look and see that the meaning of Leviticus is found in the good news, in the shadows, and also see that there's healing and holiness. Rooted in the larger story of the Bible, Leviticus shows us how God pursues an enslaved, jaded, dysfunctional people. Um, they were enslaved. They were, they were addicted to their sin. Um, they were jaded. They were people full of despair. And they were dysfunctional. They were self-destructive people. They were addicted, despairing, self-destructive, much like you and me. And God rescued them from this to bring them into something better. The Jewish people were only free from Egyptian rule for a handful of years before God calls Moses up on a mountain to lay out for him what being free really looks like. In other words, on the top of Mount Sinai, God gave Moses an experience of reality itself. God brings him into heaven, and Moses sees and experiences the throne room of God, and then he receives from God handwritten instructions on how to build an earthly copy of what he'd seen. The earthly copy was a worship center, 
in a tent called the tabernacle, which would later become the Jewish temple. But in order to make sense of it all, you have to remember that the temple was more than just a convenient worship space. Everything from the arrangement of the furniture to the colors on the walls to the curtains that went into making, it it preached a message. This is what life really looks like lived in God's presence. And the book of Leviticus follows right on the heels of the description of that building. And so Leviticus is God's further instruction of what life around that temple is supposed to look like. Leviticus gives us a glimpse into the appropriate behaviors that correspond to the heavenly realities, showing us that behaviors have to be consistent with the realities surrounding them. You know this. I mean, what happens if you dive into a pool, swimming pool, deep end, open your mouth and try to breathe? Right, you quickly learn that the reality of being underwater requires behaviors that are consistent with that reality. Right? Breathing and being underwater only works for a fish. This explains why a spouse is so deeply hurt when he or she finds out the other has cheated on them. Right? The reality of marriage is such that having sex with someone else is inconsistent behavior. This is exactly what Leviticus is saying. There really is a universe. Um, there is, excuse me, there is a reality in the universe, says God. And this reality is me. This reality is dominated by my all-encompassing, all-conditioning, all-sustaining holiness. And before you can know me and be in my presence, you need some instruction on the appropriate behaviors that acknowledge that reality. So lastly, I want to see how um, we see the meaning of Leviticus in the realities and ritual. And this might be the most striking aspect of the book, right? You can't read Leviticus, any of you who have tried, um, you can't read Leviticus without being overwhelmed by the minutiae in God's instructions. Like, why all the ritual? And a lot of it is so strange. The practices and traditions of these ancient people just look so bizarre to us. But, you know, I wonder what they would think of our wedding ceremonies, right? Why the white dress? Why the expensive flowers? Why the tuxedos? Um, Think about this. We ritualize the things that we care about most. We ritualize the things we care about most. Your life reflects what you love the most by the patterns you establish in your daily existence. Women, how much time does it take you to get ready to go out? This is a ritual, something you care about. How do you prepare for an exam? Do you have a study ritual? Do you have a certain place, a music choice or no music? Are you alone? Are you with others? Do you have a certain type of pen or pencil? We We ritualize the things that matter most to us. There's currently a sign in campus grounds that says pro-caffeination, which is the, the definition is the inability to do anything without first drinking a cup of coffee. This is a ritual in my life. I have ritualized my coffee drinking. Um, we ritualize the things we care about the most. Derek Tidball, who's a um, commentator, says this. He says, Leviticus works on the basis of analogies with experience of the daily practice of religious rituals serving as a microcosm of the larger picture of God's relationship to his creation. What he's saying is, um, God says, I want you to do this over and over and over again so that you can see what it's like to live in my world. Think of line drills when you played sports in high school. How many times did you have to do the same thing over and over again to learn the fundamentals? Or many of you in a a few months are going to go through Greek initiation, which will pound into your head and your heart the values of the organization you're joining. So similarly, Israel was given this graphic visual aid for their faith, which enabled them to express their faith in concrete terms. I found this fascinating in the book, that God wants his people to perform certain rituals to help them live in the eternal, immaterial realities. 
If you want to see the invisible realities that I'm going to bring into your life, this is what God says. If you want to see the invisible realities I'm going to bring into your life, you have to touch the daily realities, the tangible realities of daily holiness. And it's fascinating that in giving this, this frame for the gospel to us, the form is so visual and so material. Um, in Leviticus, we see the Christian message with flesh and blood, literally with flesh and, and blood. Rob Bell, um, who was a pastor, wrote this. He said, um, instead of a treatise on the nature of the kingdom of death and its opposition to the kingdom of life, God instructs people with strange skin diseases to steer clear of the temple until they're, fr- they're clean. This is brilliant. Instead of trying to describe an abstract concept like substitutionary atonement, Leviticus gives instructions of when, where, and how to slit the throat of a lamb. The picture of blood splattering on your cloak as the lamb is placed on the fire lends vivid imagery to the penalty for sin. The entire sacrificial system becomes one giant prop, a visual aid to explain what it means to be in relationship with the one true God. Now, most of us have inherited a version of Christianity that is primarily concerned with the internal, with the reflective, with the cognitive. But the God of Leviticus is earthly. He's physical. He's interested in everything from your weekly bathing ritual to that scab on your elbow that you got last week. Now, now why would God choose to do it this way? Now, perhaps it was because he intended to become tangible. So that you can see the invisible, invisible reality in him. What this means is that when we look through this book, we're going to find that it's actually all about Jesus. Every page, every image, every command, every weird demand that God makes is intended to show us something about Jesus. Leviticus is ultimately about Jesus. Now in closing, I want to say one final thing about Leviticus. The first line of the book that we read... Um, we read that God spoke to Moses from within the tent of meeting. Meaning that God was inside the tent of meeting, but Moses couldn't enter. This is because of Moses' sin and the sin of the people. He wasn't clean, so he couldn't come close. And something that we might miss in the details of this book is that God is a God of love, and he longs to be close to his people. And he will do whatever it takes to draw near to them. And in the shadows and in the holiness codes, and in the rituals, we get a glimpse of what it cost to be close to God. And we read in the first line of Numbers, the book that immediately follows Leviticus, that God spoke to Moses in the tent, which means that all of those shadows, and all of those holiness codes, and all of those rituals, they worked. They worked. And this is where we see Jesus most clearly. That the work that Jesus did for us, the work that he did for you, his death for sin, it worked. That through faith in Christ you were brought near. And he takes us to our Father who loves us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of Leviticus. Um, And we pray that you would help us this semester as we read it together. Would you help us to see Jesus? Would you help me to make sense of it? Um, Lord, in all of it, would you um, lead us more fully into the knowledge of your love for us, that you have given all things for us so that we might be close to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.